Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I always learn so much when Jason Pfeiffer comes on. He's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and he also has a great podcast called Build for Tomorrow. Used to be called the Pessimist Archive, but he explains in part two of this why he's not calling it that anymore. What I really get from Jason is that every event is connected to every other event. And it's interesting to see how they're all connected, how, I don't know, the development of the elevator plus the air conditioner basically created all the cities you see in the South. Or what's happening after COVID, how life can change after COVID, the good from COVID. So we have a part one, we have a part two, so much information. I gave myself the exercise if I could list 10 things I learned completely new information in these episodes, and I did, and I hope you do as well. So here's part one. This All right. <laughs> well, because okay, like I mean, if this is if this is how the episode begins, people are going to tune out immediately. <laughs> no, uh, but people need to know because people has no idea how important internet is, and people okay. always get scammed. But not scammed, but like get lied to by internet provider. Let's summarize what what, what I think is the problem here. So so Jason Pfeiffer uh, is having a a, a a Wi-Fi problem. He's in the room with the router. It's perfect. He moves one room over and he's blurry. But I think five gigahertz is a scam. I think five gigahertz has such a weak uh, wavelength. It's not getting through the wall. I think you should switch to 2.4 gigahertz. Second, mm-hmm. what the hell is the Google Mesh Network? Why? Just be simple. <laughs> Wait, Simple's hold on, hold on. Best. Verizon uh, Bias on. already gets you everything. Just use the router without the Google Mesh Network. I have to debate with uh, James a little bit. I, I, I'm a fan of five gigahertz. You know, because I think that they provide more. That's more because you're stuff. sitting out by the pool in your luxury compound that all the audio engineers have, <laughs> and so nothing is getting in the way I get of your five gigahertz signal. <laughs> uh, I feel left out by that pool scene. <laughs> if you are having Verizon FiOS, the lowest package they offer is three hundred 
up and down. Yeah, lowest. Lowest. So I should be getting 300 and I'm getting 50. Two issues. 2.4 gigahertz, in some cases, not all, is better than five gigahertz because for close quarters with walls, it's stronger. And the Google Mesh Network, you're just putting that in between you and your relationship with Verizon Fios. It's like it's like you have your wife, but then there's some girl you talk to on the phone all the time before you talk to your wife. Oh, we're just friends. And so you're just friends with the Google Mesh Network, but it's getting in the way of your relationship with Verizon Fios. This is the kind of IT consulting I can understand. So I appreciate all the metaphors here. Otherwise, I'd be lost. How does he get rid of his Google Mesh Network? I just bought it two days ago. That, so can we just talk about, you obviously know cognitive biases, sunken cost fallacy. You bought it. What does that have to do with what your download speeds? Because I was trying to fix a problem. And the problem is that I had a router that looked like it was going to blast off into space. It was this crazy router, this like large red thing with four different antennas. I bought it five years ago. And my MacBook is telling me that it has weak security and I can't get any internet in my bedroom, which is not very far away. I live in a 1,000 square foot, two bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. I should be able to get Wi-Fi everywhere. And yet the bedroom has terrible Wi-Fi. It always has. And now that I work from home because of the pandemic, I am I'm dying in my bedroom. Okay. So Let's I got rid of the router. Wait, hold on. So I right, got rid right. of the router. And I thought, Google, I needed a mesh system because clearly there's something wrong with the bedroom, like the walls are too thick or something. So I thought, I need something that can that can heave internet into my bedroom. And that's why I got the Google Mesh. Even if Verizon Fios was having problems in your area, your building, that, it, you should be yeah. not getting the download speeds you're getting. So, yeah. and you just got a new router. So it, should be, it feels should like then them. it's something's wrong with the Wi-Fi coming into your apartment. Oh, yeah. Uh, but okay, what if you just get a, a new regular router without the Google Mesh network? Right. Here's what I here's how I like to solve these problems. Is there a person who can come over and do this for me? Who is that person? I mean, Jay, Verizon is that Fios. you? Is it somebody from Verizon Fios? <laughs> because the reason why it's Verizon Fios is because let's say you get a new router and it, and it doesn't solve your problem, then there is some issue between the Wi-Fi, the the the, the internet access through coax outside your building and into your apartment. Somewhere in between outside your building and into your apartment, something is going wrong. And it mm. has to be on the coaxial cable yep. then, wherever, whether it's located in a different location than you think, or whether there's a problem with the, the cable itself is a little broken. Yeah. So then that's why you need a Verizon Fios person. The only S no other thing you could try on your own is getting a router that is just a Verizon router. Maybe Verizon doesn't like talking to non-Verizon routers. Yeah, also you can run run a cable like 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 i i mentioned earlier just run a cable straight from the from the verizon modem to your computer and see how much you're getting right so that, that should be the be first it. step yeah run an ethernet cable straight from the modem to your computer and then you see if it's the router or not basically bypass everything in between right so you know what's mm -hmm. the pure issue right there so there's there's troubleshooting 101 you have to eliminate anything in between but that's why i'm worried about the google mesh network is something in between but God forbid you buy a new router and you still have the same problem, then only Verizon can solve it. Yeah. Right. So, so once you run the router, when you once you run the cable uh, from your modem to your computer and you look at the speed, if it's still the same speed, then you should definitely call Verizon Fires. Like, hey, um, what what's my plan? Is am I getting the 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 highest plan, the lowest plan? And then like, if there's issues, then you're like, hey, you guys should come out and fix the issues. Okay. 
so I'm going to restate this back to you because I like, I like action plans and I like to restate it back so that I understand it. This is what I do at the end of every meeting that I ever take. So the first thing that I need to do after our call today is I need to go and I need to plug my computer directly into the modem. And then I need to run another speed test and I need to see what's going on. If it's the same crappy speed as what I get now, then we've got a Verizon Fios problem and I've got to call them immediately. And if it is a better speed than what I'm getting now, then I've got a router problem and I just wasted $300 or whatever the hell I just spent on Google Mesh. Is that right? Yep. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so like, like for instance, have you talked to other people in the building? Do they have poor Wi-Fi? I don't know the answer. I should ask. I mean, it's very easy. Like, I don't know when your coaxial cable was installed. It's very easy for physical damage to occur to a coaxial cable. It could be somewhere as it's running through the house that, or maybe you're the last stop in the yeah. house. That's the other issue. Like, we don't know how the, the essentially the architecture of this coaxial cable as it goes from outside to inside Right. And that's the issue. That that is probably the issue. That's why you probably need to call Verizon FiOS. Now, the the only reason I say about the Google Mesh network is that typically companies do a thing where they don't like to talk to products that are not made by them. Right. And so it could be that Verizon deliberately doesn't speak well to the Google Mesh network. Yeah. And and so you know that's the reason to try that. Otherwise, I can't think of. Oh, the other thing is that we spoke about is you need to try 2.4 gigahertz. Why can't you switch to 2.4 gigahertz? It's not giving me the option. I don't have like the two options. My parents have Google Mesh as well, which is the why I thought to buy it. And they do have that option. Like I look at it and it says, you know, whatever their name is, 2.4 and 5. This only gives me one option, which is the name of my wife. It doesn't give me two options. And I can't find anything. I wonder why your parents had that option, but not you. It could be when you set up, it could be a new whole new system already, you know, maybe when they, when they bought it, it was the first generation or something. I mean, it all, it all happened through Google, through the Google Home app, which is what I was looking at a minute ago. I mean, it's got all this stuff that I don't know what I'm looking at here, right? Um, there's, a, there's a thing to test the mesh, but, but I'm, also, I'm also concerned that the Google Home app is telling me that my last test was lightning fast, but I'm showing you guys the numbers and you're telling me that it's uh, you know lightning slow. <laughs> who told you? No. Who told you it was lightning fast? The, the, the company that makes Google. the product. Yes. Yeah. Right there, Google. Doesn't that tell you something when the oh this is going great? Good thing we made it. Doesn't that? It's like well, no, because like, I feel like wouldn't they want to pass the buck? Wouldn't they want to say our technology is doing great, but something crappy is coming in here? It is saying that. I believe that something has to do with the FCC because right now FCC considered 25 megabits download a fast broadband. Okay, here's the first thing to try. If you want an yeah. action plan, yeah. number one, plan. figure out how to use the Google Mesh network to get a 2.4 gigahertz connection because okay. all of these routers will always default to 5 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz has more problems than people think. Now, 5 gigahertz is great when it works, but if it doesn't work, you need to be able to switch to 2.4 gigahertz, mm -hmm. and it's not giving you that option for some reason. Google Mesh Network does have two networks. We know that. So there's when you, I would log in to the router itself and try to configure 2.4 gigahertz. There must be a way to do it. Second thing is you try a new router, but who knows? Third thing yeah. is connect straight through an Ethernet cable from the router to your computers and see right. what the strength is. And the fourth thing is you've got to call Verizon Fios. Now calling Verizon Fios, you obviously have a residential connection, but you're working from home. So maybe you can have, 
you could tell them you want to switch to a commercial um, oh, yeah. account and in a commercial account they're guaranteed to um send over someone within 24 hours oh yeah that's good yeah the, the, i like the, that the, yeah because i because i was totally thinking account. when i call verizon fios i'm gonna have to go through 14 different people and they're gonna have me all troubleshoot the exact same right they're gonna their default is to not send somebody over it's gonna take forever. right but if you're a commercial yep. network that's part if you're a commercial uh, account it's not really more expensive it might not be more expensive at all you just have to be a business mm. and they will send someone over within 24 hours Ooh, that's yep. their deal that's a hot yep. tip yeah, I gave you. I just gave you five hot tips, so that wasn't <laughs> well, the only and, one. And also, that's the reason why James is like all of a sudden all expert in uh, internet setup. Right, uh, I just set right up now. my own. So, and I had problems. So, I know everything yeah. now. That's amazing. It, it's easy to be an expert, and I'm a good salesman. So it's easy for me to convince myself that I'm an expert. That's my problem. You, that's, you, that's why I want to talk to you about imposter syndrome. <laughs> you convinced me. I, I'm, I'm sold on, uh, on doing all of this. Although I really still would default to, can somebody just do this for me? I don't have the time for this. Who can do this for me? Jay, you got to come over and just do this for me. The one thing, the one thing Jay can do is he can, like, like you could do this too, really, is get your handbook for the Google Mesh Network Log in yeah, with yeah. your username and password and configure your 2.4 gigahertz. So I, I believe if I was going to think the simplest solution other than something's wrong with the coaxial cable is that you're not properly, the fact that you don't have the option to switch to 2.4 gigahertz is causing you a problem. Yeah. Because it's very easy yeah. for five gigahertz. It, it's telling to me that your Wi-Fi is strong in the living room, but not in the other room. No, it's not. And, it's not. It's not. No, wrong data point. When I did, well, Jay, just a minute ago, I ran a speed test on my wife's laptop, which was in the living room. And it was worse than mine. So, and she's, she's 10 feet from the router. Right. So that, that sounds like a Verizon problem, but all, it could be the 2.4 gigahertz problem. But really what signals the 2.4 gigahertz problem is if it gets very bad, if you move one room over mm -hmm. from the main thing. And that's also happening. You could be having two problems, right. that the coaxial cable is not working well and you can't switch to 2.4 gigahertz. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. but at least we want to get, if you get to 2.4 gigahertz and you're fine in, in one room away, then you're fine. Then you don't have to call Verizon so fast. Right. Even if there is a problem there. Who needs 400 megabits a second anyway? Work. I so. mean, I mean, if you're doing like video stuff, you know. Yeah, that's true. That would be great to have, you know, 400 megabits. Working from home yeah. is so much fun. Who knew? I know. Who knew it would be this much I fun? Know. By the way, working from home, more than 50% of, of workers have basically said if they're required to go, more than 50% of remote workers have said if they're required to go back to work, they'll quit their job, which is part of the reason why we're seeing such a shortage of employees now in almost every industry. Well, yeah, that's because those employees understand what companies either always did but refused to acknowledge or just simply couldn't understand, which is that the office is, is for so many people in so many jobs, completely unnecessary. And not only unnecessary, but I think is truly inhibiting good work. That's how I always felt being in an office. I agree. I mean, the last time I worked in a cubicle was 1998, 1997, mm. sorry. Um, and I just always felt I was in part hiding from my boss yeah. because there's other things that, you know, you, creativity is inspired by exploration and discovery. There's work and there's discovery and you need to do both to be creative and to succeed, I think. When I worked at Fast Company, which was a number of years ago, under a different administration, I should note, uh, like most of the people who were there now were not there then. 
They had this ridiculous policy of constantly moving our desks. I hated it so much where uh, they would just rotate everybody. You'd have to pack up all your stuff and you'd, you'd now sit in a different row with a different group of people. And the idea, I think, was to foster this idea of serendipitous conversation. But I found that Number one, all it did was remove our sense of agency because I felt like I had absolutely no control over my own environment. And then two, I, you know, I, you're plopping me down next to people who I don't normally work with and don't have much to do with. And so I'm just wearing headphones all day so they don't have to hear them talk so that I can focus on my work. I found it infuriating and just a, just a, a willful misunderstanding of how good work happens. It drove me crazy. So I totally sympathize with everybody who would rather stay home. Is the entire um, Entrepreneur Magazine remote or yep. Got rid of what's the, the deal? Got rid of the office. It's gone. In New York. And, and, and let me ask you this. Why do people, when I bring this up to people uh, who are, I mean, there's so many cognitive biases and cognitive dissonance that occurs, but a lot of people argue with me like, oh no, work's never going to be remote. And it's so obvious that it's better to me. But, you know, of course people disagree with everything, but <laughs> people get angry. Yeah. People get angry. Well, people get angry about change. Change makes, change makes people panic. I think that we will not all be remote because change just doesn't work that way, right? If you look back at the history of change and history of innovation, what you see is that new never comes and wholesale replaces old. New integrates with old. So you take the best of the old and the best of the new and you mix them together into something that works for you. And I think that every company will ultimately come to some kind of mixture where there will be companies that everyone's back in the office five days a week but the change will be that there isn't as much travel for meetings because you didn't need it as much or whatever, right? I, I actually, I, yeah. I, I, did a, I did a talk recently for a large, uh, like, a, like a quick service uh, food company. And they told me that they are having everybody come back into the office. But the big revelation for them was that this was this was the real estate team that I was talking to. The big revelation for them was that they didn't need to travel to visit the sites where they were building new restaurants nearly as often. And that you know that's that's a big change. It's not the full change where everyone's working from home, but not having to get on the plane like five times to go to Des Moines to check out a new restaurant, like that's a real change. And so I think every company will figure out what works for them, and that's how it should be. There's no. There's never one right fix. And even when change comes along, that doesn't mean that the change is the right fix for everybody. So let's talk about this. Like you did a podcast recently, what good has come from COVID? Yeah. But what other things uh, would you say are, are good things and how can people take advantage of these good things if they haven't started to yet? Yeah, so- the let, let's, let's, talk, let's talk a little theoretical before we get into the specifics because I was curious about what good comes from- gigantic change slash disasters. And there's a really interesting history on this. I found all sorts of good things that came out of the bubonic plague of the 1300s, which I can tell you about if you want. But the big takeaway, the most insightful thing anybody said during that research came from this guy named Brian Berkey at Wharton. And he said that moments of crisis force us to shift the window on what we are willing to collectively take seriously. And that to me is a really powerful insight. Right? What, it, what it means is that there are all these options. We always have lots of options. There's always so much that we can do, but we filter and we have to. 
by nature, we can't be always looking at every possible option. So we filter. And there are some ideas that we think are worth taking seriously. And there are some ideas that we put to the side and we say, that's insane. That's impossible. That's infuriating, whatever. And the thing is, we are wrong in our filtering. We just are. We have to be. It's not possible to be 100% correct, which means that you have great right. ideas that you're putting to the side and you're not taking seriously. And then you will compound that problem by continuing to build off of the plan that you have made in which you have put some really good ideas off to the side and you're not considering them. Do you follow? So, so let me, yeah, yes, I follow because if you think about it, I don't know if, if you remember or the listeners remember, but right before COVID mm -hmm. was starting to get the headlines, which was, let's say the first week of March, and then by March 13th, we were locked down. Or let's say last week of February even, you know, what was the most important issue that our filtering system, that society's filtering system, decided were the main headlines? Yeah, right before COVID was hitting the headlines. What was it? I'll tell you, I'll tell you. Prince Harry quit his family. <laughs> <laughs> that was the main headlines, I swear to God. Yeah. And, because I, I researched this, and... Uh, uh, everybody, it was every day there was new news. Like she wasn't going to let him keep his dukedom. He had to leave the army. Meghan Markle was a jerk or she does, didn't like the queen or never got along with Kate Middleton. Mm -hmm. Like every day he, he was going to, he was going to give up his, his salary, but not his father's allowance of 3 million a year. And, <laughs> and he was going to move to a $10 million home in Canada. Like that were the, the main headlines every single day. That was so important in our filtering system. It canceled out the fact that just a week or so before that, we had bombed General Soleimani and were about to go to World War III with Iran. Mm. And Harry over, overshone that, and then COVID started. What a series of, what a snapshot into a, what feels like at once a distant world, but also a very familiar world. Because we, we've come right yeah. back to that, haven't we? I mean, there's not, we, well, Oprah had her special. Everybody tuned in. We're all still focused on now a different military mess. I, you know, we we don't have the capacity to, I think, really hold a full holistic perspective of our world at large, or for that matter, the things that are actually impacting us as individuals very well. And so we instead bounce from thing to thing. And we, I think, extrapolate too much what we see. And we think that it's going to impact our lives or our worlds in ways that are that are probably either larger than they really turn out to be or different than they turn out to be. We're very, very bad at predicting the future. Which is, which is actually very much related to, uh, you know, I follow you on Twitter. I hope you follow me I on do. Twitter. I don't know. I do. And you retweeted something recently a few weeks ago, uh, uh, Sridhar Ramaswamy, uh, his advice for starting a company. Number one was identify a core customer need. And this is very much related. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that. I don't think customers know what they need. Mm. I think customers like, like, uh, know what- You look at Steve Jobs, yeah. like Steve Jobs, you know, with, with the phone, he didn't, you know, everybody already had a music player right. and and- Nobody, no other phone company had identified, oh, we need to basically combine everything into one device. That'll be great. And he did. And everybody thought, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people thought the iPhone would be a flop. Yeah. And yet uh, it succeeded. That's true. Well, okay, but let's, we, I feel like we have to break that down philosophically. So what was the line? Identify what customers need? Uh, yeah, identify a core customer need. Identify and my argument is customers don't really know what they need and you don't really know what they need. 
meaning the, the entrepreneur. See, it's true, but I don't think that those are in conflict with each other because what you're responding to is, you're responding to an imaginary version in which he says, ask customers what they need and then respond to that. But identifying a core customer need doesn't mean that the customer articulated that need. Or that's true. it doesn't mean that the customer articulated the need in the way that they actually want to solve it. Because I would say that Steve Jobs, here's what Steve Jobs and all the customers could have both agreed upon before the iPhone. They could have said, people like efficiency, and I would like to make my life more efficient. There are lots of things that I can't access when I'm on the go, and I would really like if those things were, were there with me. Now, how are we going to do that? I don't know. You figure it out, Steve. But I think, so I, so I think that if you sat a bunch of people down and you said, how... How? What do you need to do your work and conduct your life better? People would not have had good answers that you could have turned into a product, but they probably could have identified some kind of abstract pain point that a really inventive person could have turned into a world-changing product. That's true, but you had, you had to take a leap of faith too because phones were on a you know 70-year trend of minimization at that time where every phone model was smaller than the model before. Right. And suddenly the iPhone was bigger than like the flip phone, for instance, which mm -hmm. was around at that time. So he had to take a leap of faith that the trend could be reversed because the need for, let's say, apps and games and music right. was greater than the need for the 70-year constant need for minimization. Well, that's because he rethought it, the thing that you're actually holding. Right? I mean, this is, what he did is that he took, you're right, that the phone was shrinking, but what if you stop thinking of it as a phone? And we still call it a phone, which is weird because it's like, yeah. I use it least for being a phone. Right. The phone is just an app on your phone. Right. <laughs> the phone is an app on so. it. Right. It's one function on your phone, but we don't have a better term for it. I mean, we call it a smartphone, but it's like a stupid thing that people have dropped. So it's now just the phone again. But when you think about it, so I have this, I'm obsessed, James, with this, with this question, asking this question. And I, I feel like a version of this question could have gotten you from phone to smartphone. And that question is, what is it for? I feel like if you ask about everything that you do and all the things that you have, the question, what is it for? And I'll give you an example of how it applies to my own industry because this is where I came from or where, where the idea came from for me. Uh, when you ask that repeatedly, what you find is that the answer to it changes. And if you're really willing to take the answer seriously, it leads you in radical new directions. So, so give me an example. Yeah. So... Here's, I give a lot of talks about change because that's like my big subject, how to find opportunity and change, how to become more adaptable. And one of the first questions in an audience afterwards is always, uh, very interesting uh, topic, Jason. You work at a legacy media company with a print magazine, uh, which seems like pretty old. So how does change uh, work for you. And, hmm. you know, after, after people ask me this over and over again, I, and then like, after, after you called him a dick for asking <laughs> that, like, he's sort of like, he's sort of like calling you out there a little bit. Like yes. I would have, I would have been a little aggressive in my response. No, I respect it. You know why? Because I feel like the thing that any sensible person should do when they're hearing somebody's 
somebody's philosophy or, or guidebook for the world is to try to poke holes in it because the holes are where the really interesting stuff happens. And if you, if, if you find that you, you poke something, you think it's a hole and the person can fill in the hole, then maybe this thing is a little sounder than it was before. So I, I like it. I like it. It feels like the, it's the lowest hanging fruit and I like that people go for it. And so I, I, but it, but it forced me to really think about it and it changed ultimately the way that I think of my industry. And again, it goes to this question, what is it for? So here's how it works. I started to ask this question, what is content for? What is it for? And if you were to, and obviously like, you know, news has this intrinsic value in society, all that, but let's just put that aside. What is content for? Business speaking, what is it for? Well, if you were to answer that question for the majority of time in which the media industry was around, the answer would be content is for monetization. Content is what you sell subscriptions to and content is what you run ads against. And that's how you make money off of the content. But now that's not true. If you ask the question, seriously ask the question, what is content for? The answer can't be monetization because subscriptions are harder and harder to sell and ads are harder and harder to sell. And yes, of course, there are exceptions to that, but but overall, trends are down industry-wide. It's very hard to sell subscriptions to something. It's very hard to monetize it with ads. So what is content for? Well, it's for something. It's got to be for something. We're all making it. What's it for? And my answer is it's for relationships. Because when I talk to audiences, what I find is that they feel a trust and they feel a bond with a media property that they recognize and have been consuming for a while. They, 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 they like entrepreneur. They like, I used to work at men's health. Here's the thing that would always happen. I, I worked at men's health for like three or four years, the very beginning of my career. I'd go to a party. Somebody would say, what do you do? I'd say, I'm an editor at Men's Health. And they'd be like, whoa, I love Men's Health. That's awesome. And I would say, that's so cool. Um, what was your favorite story recently? And they say, oh, I, I, I mean, I, I, I haven't picked up the magazine in years, but I, you know, I, I, so I don't know. But I, but I love it. It's so great, right? The, it's a relationship. Content has built a relationship. Even if they are not maintaining that relationship, it is a relationship. It's trust. So the question to me then becomes, well, okay, if that's the most powerful thing that comes out of content right now, that, that is not waning, then how do you build a business off of that? And the answer is that you build products and services that people will buy because they trust you because of the content. I mean, this is why brands go into content. Why does Red Bull make a magazine and all these videos and all this stuff about extreme sports? Is that because that's where their money is coming from? No, they make their money off of energy drinks. But people will buy the energy drinks because they trust the brand because of the content. So I think that the future of media has to be one in which we stop thinking about content as a thing that we monetize. We start thinking about it as a thing that we build relationships off of. And then we are monetizing that audience in different ways through products and services services because of the content, because of the trust. So that's an example of what is it for? Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, 
I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. 
Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Some people make a ton of money on their podcast. Let's talk with like Joe Rogan or whoever, Tim Ferriss, whatever. But I think the main goal for doing a podcast is not to quit your job and get rich doing the podcast, but I get many more opportunities because people know of me through my podcast or my Mm -hmm. writing or my content, like you say. So it builds relationship. It builds, I don't want to use the word brand, but it builds relationships. People get to know you. And, and so their world of people they know is larger because you're coming into their living room, communicating to them. Now, there's the other side of the question, which is what is content for to the consumer? You mentioned how news has some intangible value, but I would argue that the main value of customer for the consumer is entertainment. Even when yeah. we're providing information, I agree with that. it's 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 mostly entertainment because mm-hmm. we want to know about Prince Harry or Kanye or whatever. Sure. Uh, but but yeah, that's really interesting. So what was your answer to you know the guy who asked about Entrepreneur Magazine? <laughs> well, you know, it's the funny thing is that in the beginning, I think I probably stumbled around an answer and I said, well, it's still very valuable and we're also innovating. We're like pushing into new spaces. But then my answer became this, I mean, it became what I just told you, right? Like, I mean, I just walk people through my thinking because I think that the most important, it's like, I, I like to answer questions for people by trying to get to what I think that they really care about instead of what they're just asking me. Like that guy's asking me about that, but he doesn't care about the media industry, right? Who ca- you know, like who cares about that if you're not working in media? But if I can deliver to you some new way of thinking, which to me is that question, what is it for? Applying what is it for to everything that you're doing? Then then I think that I've provided some kind of value. So like I, I always try to I always try to answer the question in a way that I think gets to something that can be useful to people rather than just like literally answering their question. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this is very important from an entrepreneurial perspective because let's say you have an ad agency and and people have a choice between hiring your ad agency, ad agency or hiring another ad agency. Mm-hmm. It, it's having, I, and I asked, I say this because I ran an agency in the 90s. That was my first business. It was a type of agency. Mm-hmm. And everybody, you couldn't really judge who makes a better website, who doesn't make a better website. So really relationship was everything. And that was a very direct relationship. Like I would call people and say, let's go to dinner. Yeah. Like that was my sales technique as opposed to saying, oh, we could do the best website for the cheapest. Nobody cared about that because they didn't know how to judge that. That's right. But if they liked you, they'd hire you. That's right. And and that was very important. So so uh, it's it's interesting to say what you think the customer needs on every side of that equation 
is not always what the obvious answer is. And I think, yeah, it's important for people, for, for entrepreneurs to realize that they have to have many angles into the customer. And hopefully one of those angles is correct. Oh, we have the best product. Oh, we have the best brand. Oh, we have the best, you know, warranty or, or, or we, we have the best entertainment value right. or something. I don't yeah, know. Well, that, I mean, I think what you just said there about, about the building the relationships, I think is really valuable because some people might think that the only way that we are going to sell ourselves is through the quality of our work. And that is not to say that the, what I'm about to say does not discount quality of work. Quality of work has to be there. But another way to think about it is that quality of work is assumed. So if you are working at a certain level, then quality of work is assumed. I know that you're going to be good at this. So the question is, what else does the client need? And the answer is often trust. Like, why are you going out to dinner with a client? Because they need more than just quality of work. They can get quality of work anywhere. They need trust. And a version of this that that really opened my eyes to, to this insight came from a conversation. It was like an offhanded thing that this guy said. It was a conversation with the president of Reebok years ago. And he was telling me how they are always thinking there about um, about how quality has to be assumed. Um, he said, he was like, the example he gave me was, was scissors. He's like, imagine trying to market scissors. You can't market scissors by saying it cuts things really well. It better cut things really well. Like if there's a scissors on the market, then cutting things really well has to be assumed. So what else can you offer so that you're going beyond the quality that everyone assumes? If you think that you are delivering just on the thing that you're delivering on, then you're missing the real opportunity. Oftentimes the real opportunity is trust. It's additional value. It's other ways that it fits into your world. It's ways that it's ways that it understands you and your world. That's what ultimately you're competing upon because trust, because quality has to be assumed. So how would you advertise scissors? Like if you were to make a marketing campaign for scissors, <laughs> what would you do? Well, like I could see yeah. a commercial where just like scene after scene of someone being mugged, but you pull out your scissors and you just stab someone <laughs> to death with the scissors. I feel like that leads to a lawsuit. Uh, I, that's a good question. Well, okay. If I was trying to enter the, the scissors market now, I guess I would start by thinking, let's look at who is underserved by the existing scissors in the market, or rather who, who is willing, who's able to be picked off of like the generic scissors out there where like 3M must make a 20,000 different scissors, right? And they're going to tackle and own all the, I don't know, who's the major buyers of scissors? Uh, all the, all the, anyone, any office who just needs a pair of scissors. Um, so who, who can I serve that is looking for something more than cheap, assumed quality scissors? Um, I think that design is one way to go, right? People who are designing their offices or their homes in particular ways so that they would really appreciate a scissors that feels like it fits into their design aesthetic. Um, maybe I would think that the adult scissor market is totally saturated, but is there someone else that I can market scissors to? Is the kids scissor market ready to blow up. Like, you know, there, there's those are little like zigzaggy scissors. Maybe there's something totally innovative there. Uh, I don't know. How would you market scissors? I, I feel like, I feel like I can't, you can't just make a good pair of scissors. That already exists. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, well, you know, yeah, because you, you were almost veering into product design. Yeah. Like, uh, how, how could you, like, I could see with product design, you know, you have a basic scissors, but then different attachments. Oh, are we cutting meat or are we cutting paper? <laughs> or, you know, mm. we can put a different attachment. But like, I think, I think to market it, I would do something just ridiculous. Like, um, you know, two people are in a cafeteria, a public or public eating place. One's cutting, uh, but making a mess of what is cutting. Like he's cutting an article out of a newspaper and it's right. all jagged. Another one just has a very fast, like it makes, and then the, 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 the handsome guy or the beautiful girl, uh, is attracted to the person with the, the my brand scissors. <laughs> so, um, you just do the car, you just do the car right. thing. So what's, what's the difference between any two cars? I have no idea. Sometimes the cars are exactly the same, but two different companies, but the same factory. Yeah. Made them. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, so, brand. so I'll give you like a little historical anecdote that maybe, maybe would, would guide us here on the scissors example. All right. So, I'm trying to think what I starting with here is what's just a common object that you don't really think that much about and you don't associate with brand in any way. So the fork in the early 1800s was not a very common thing that you would find on tables in America. Uh, the fork, the fork actually has a long, crazy history. Uh, it took thousands and thousands of years for people to be willing to use a fork. Like people, people hated it. It's one point it was associated with the devil. Anyway, it's long and, and interesting and wacky. And you can find it on my podcast, Build for Tomorrow, where I did a whole episode about forks. But, uh, but in the in, by the 1800s, um, the fork had made its way over to America, but it was only used by the elite. And the reason for that was in one way very simple. And that was because there's a reason we use the word silverware. And that's because silver was the best material to make utensils out of. People tried other things, but like you make a, you make silver, you make a fork out of iron and things go bad quickly, you know? And, uh, and so you got to use, uh, you got to use sil silver just turned out to be the best, which means that most people can't afford it. And if they're going to be buying anything, it's going to be a spoon and a knife and a fork is just a luxury item that most people can't afford. And also people are associating with the elite and they're like, I'm not the elite. I'm a common person. I don't want a fork. And then uh, a couple things change. Silver plating is invented in the mid 1800s, and then which means that you only have to use a tiny amount of silver. And then the Comstock load is found in 1859. And um, the Comstock load is so now you've got like a ton of silver, and you, which which drops the price of silver. And now you can make a utensil using just a very tiny amount of silver. And so the price of a fork plummets. And now forks can be used by anybody. And so everybody starts buying a fork. It's no longer an elite product. Now, what do the silver companies do to serve their elite client who now feels left out because their cool fork that was once a status symbol is no longer a status symbol? The answer is that they start to make all of these specialty forks. So this is where you get the the olive fork and the macaroni fork and the ice cream fork because people used to eat ice cream with forks and the you know, various fish forks. Like there's a whole world of these things. Go Google them. There's a million of them. And this is where it comes out of. It comes out of trying to serve this elite marketplace where they just lost their status symbol and they wanted something new. And so we created specialty forks and this worked for a while until it didn't. Anyway, point is, here is an example in which, yeah, in which you have, you have a, an, an object that could be be considered a general utility. And you have an audience of people who would like a specialized version of that. And if you can understand 
what that audience is looking for, then you can serve them with something that didn't previously exist, which actually goes back to your Steve Jobs example, right? Like you couldn't have gone to those people and said, okay, people, you've got a bunch of money and you don't feel special with your fork anymore. So what do you want? They wouldn't have come up with macaroni fork. But if you understood what they were lacking in their world now and what they were willing to spend their money on and the kinds of things that they will bring into their homes and make it feel like an elite status symbol, well, then macaroni fork suddenly makes a lot of sense. Well, that's just it. It's very interesting because they're not really buying what they're, they're, bu- they're not really buying a macaroni fork. They're buying right. status, right? So you have to be aware of that subtlety, which is not so easy to be aware mm-hmm. of, and it wouldn't come out in any questionnaire. Right. Like you have to sort of either fall into that or really deeply understand what's changed, yeah. what's the before and after. Thanks for listening to part one of this, part two, which is also downloaded today. I learned all about everything from the elevator to more about podcasting, how Jason makes decisions and what's going on in the media industry and how this applies to every one of us as an individual. And most importantly, I learned about things, amazing things I didn't know about elevators. <laughs>